All right, so we have been uh, looking at the different methods of interpretation that people have employed over the centuries, and we're going to finish up the, the liberal approach, but for review, let's go back and summarize the ones we've looked at so far. Uh, we started with the Jewish approach, which started out okay. They read the Hebrew scriptures and helped the people understand what they meant. That's the way it's supposed to work. <clears throat> Later on, as the rabbis became predominant, the predominant teachers, they went kind of soft <laughs> and started to allegorize, see things as symbolic rather than literal. Um, then we talked about the allegorical method, which uh, kind of sees things as symbolic. Scripture doesn't mean what it says, but the things in Scripture represent what's going on here and now. And so you kind of take what's uh, in Scripture and apply it as you want to, basically. Um, Galatians chapter 4, Paul uses um, the account of Hagar and Sarah in Genesis as an allegory for the, the change from the law to grace, God's promise. And so he says, this is allegorical. So Hagar represents the law, and, and um, Ishmael represents Israel under the law. Sarah represents God's promise, and Isaac is the child of the promise, Israel under the promise. So he makes an allegorical application. He is not using an allegorical method of interpretation because he's not saying that that account in Genesis doesn't mean what it says. He said it means what it says. It's just he's using it as an example to clarify the point he's trying to make. <clears throat> and we looked at the literal method where the people look at the words and what it says is what it means. So in the Psalms, when it says that God protects his children under his wings, then obviously God has wings. They don't take into consideration that it's poetry, it's an image, it's not. That's the literal method. Uh, then we talked about the devotional method, which is focused more on applying this to yourself rather than finding out what the scripture means. It's a combination of the literal because they look at the words and the allegorical because you decide how to apply it to yourself. And it's not, you'd never really get to the meaning of the text. And we got into the liberal method. I'm standing right in the way here. Um, the liberal method started out as an attack on Scripture. The German higher critics began by saying that Scripture was not inspired. It was just a human effort. Therefore, you analyze it, you understand it, the same way you would understand any secular literature. <clears throat> so they applied, at least they said they were going to apply the... Uh, system of literary criticism that they would use for standard literature to the Bible. Actually, they didn't do that. Because anytime you do any kind of literary analysis, literary criticism, you start by assuming that the text is what it claims to be. You give the text the benefit of the doubt. Then as you analyze it, you can kind of determine whether or not it really is what it claims to be. But they didn't start that way. They started by saying the Bible is not divine because there is no divine. So they kind of cooked the books before they even started. 
<clears throat> and we saw how they developed their idea that uh, along evolutionary lines, as man developed evolutionarily, his mind improved and his concept of God got more, a little more complex. So the Bible could not have been written by the people that is, it is ascribed to because they were too primitive back then to be able to write what the Bible says. So it had to have been written later. And when they get to the Pentateuch, they came up with a documentary hypothesis. It was written by four different people. And later on, an editor came and shuffled it together. And we have what we have now is the first five books of the Bible. <clears throat> and that's kind of where we left off last time. So we're going to finish up the liberal... Um, did the documentary hypothesis. Sorry about this, I got the wrong slide. Anyway, that's the documentary hypothesis. <laughs> okay. The four different documents. And again, they came up with this right out of the blue, because there's no evidence for this whatsoever. They just said it couldn't have been the way it's claimed, therefore it had to be somewhere, some other way, and they decided on this. Who's the, the critics. Yeah, the German higher critics. Yeah. <clears throat> so we'll move on to the some more basic principles of, of the liberal approach. They, again, begin by saying there's no possibility of prophecy, that is, foretelling the future, um, because there's no supernatural. Mankind obviously doesn't know what's going to happen next. Only God could do that. But since there is no God, there can be no prophecy. <clears throat> they claim that uh, all so-called prophecy was written after the events. And Daniel chapters 2 and 7 are classic examples of this. <clears throat> In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about the image with the head of gold and the shoulders and arms and chest of silver and and then in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream of the four beasts, and each succeeding beast overcomes the previous one. And God interprets both of those as being uh, the sequence of nations that were going to come after Babylon. Babylon is the head of gold in the image. Um, <clears throat> and it turns out that that's exactly how it happened. So the higher critics were saying, well, that's too close to reality to be so-called prophecy. So it must have been written after the fact, and uh, the people who wrote it then um, put the label prophecy on it to make it either more significant, like this is from God, or they just wanted to emphasize monotheism because God is in charge. You probably have read this at some point, too. About a few years ago, they took the book of Daniel and put it into a computer, and whatever analyzing system they had, and it proved that four different people wrote the <laughs> So somebody took the article that the man wrote, put it into the computer, and proved that five different people wrote it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's like, it, this, this is, has nothing to do with the lesson, but it's similar to what you were saying. Um, this is true. Back when computers were just coming in, when they took up a whole room, they had people fill out these little computer cards. They're doing a survey. 
okay? And so they had to indicate, you know, their, just demographic information, age, sex, and all of that stuff, you know. And so they put the cards into the computer and told the computer to sort them according to gender, and it came, put them into five stacks. <laughs> that might work today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. <clears throat> so there's a problem with this, obviously, and we've talked about this before. Archaeology shows that those prophetic writings were written at the time they claimed to have been written. Daniel really was written during the Babylonian captivity. The liberals, the, the higher critics, wanted to put it after, you know, way after Rome. Um, but they found the documentary evidence, historical evidence, and no, Daniel wrote it way back there when it was supposed to be written. We, showed, we noted before that the higher critics um, uh, criticized the Bible because the Bible mentions the Hittites and they weren't aware of any Hittites, and so they made fun of, them, fun of the Bible and then they found the Hittites. <laughs> so this is why higher criticism kind of faded in the, the mid-1900s because it was continually being proven wrong. Now, it didn't go away. Well, the name went away, but uh, liberalism, it just other forms developed. And the primary one we have now is neo-orthodoxy, which we've talked about already. Scripture is not inspired by God. It's inspired only if it speaks to you. So you kind of decide what is the Word of God and what isn't. So that's kind of the liberal method of interpretation and again it was intended to be an attack on the Bible you learn what the Bible means simply by looking at the historical context in which it was written because that influences the writers to write what they wrote so you have to limit it just to a human um, document obviously the evidence shows otherwise <clears throat> so we come to the last uh, method of interpretation, the only one that works <laughs> out of all the ones we talked about. Uh, it's called the literal grammatical. This is literal in the good sense. We talked about the literal method before. It's the bad sense where you look just at the words and give a meaning to the words and you don't really get to um, the understanding of what the text itself means. Uh, this means after you have done your work in hermeneutics, you come to the meaning of the text and you accept that as the literal or real meaning of the text. Okay, so it's all based on the text. It's not something you make up in your, uh, in your own head. And it's grammatical because that's how you get to the literal meaning. You analyze the text. So this is the one that works. And um, well, I was going to say something, but it doesn't really add to the discussion, so we'll do that. <laughs> this method is based on inspiration. Uh, the word for inspiration is theopnutos. Theopnutos. The theo part is from theos, God, and the pneuma part is from the Holy Spirit, the, the pneuma, the Spirit. Pneuma means spirit or wind or breath. Why do they call it pneumonia? Because it affects your breathing. 
Okay, it has, we have pneumatic pumps. They work by air pressure. So this is God-breathed, literally exhaled by God. It's unfortunate that our English word inspiration starts with the word in, which makes you think of inhaling, <laughs> but the Greek word is the opposite. It was breathed out by God. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this applies, inspiration applies to the scripture, not to the writers. None of the writers of the Bible were inspired. The words they wrote were inspired. God didn't breathe out the writers. <laughs> he breathed out the words that they wrote. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20, 21, he says that the writers were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the word moved there is, in Greek, is a word that has the image of a sailboat being pushed along the water by the wind. So the Spirit basically enabled them to write, but what they wrote were the words of God. So the words were inspired, they weren't. I liken it to the, the uh, account in Exodus when they're building the tabernacle, God suddenly gifted people with certain skills to get the job done. They couldn't do those things before, but God enabled them to do those things. It's the same with writing, you know, the, uh, the writing the scripture. The Spirit enabled the people to record what God wanted recorded. Uh, this relates to the doctrine of interpretation. We'll see how it relates. First of all, we'll talk about the basic principles. Uh, the source of Scripture. Scripture is from God. We might want to look up some of these uh, verses. Somebody want to look up Jeremiah 1.9? Okay, so God is commissioning Jeremiah to go to the leaders of Israel and tell them, straighten up. Okay? And you know, this he's writing just before the Babylonians the Babylonians come in and conquer. So he's saying, Oh, this is your last chance. And God tells Jeremiah there, they're not gonna believe you. <laughs> they're not gonna listen to you, but tell them anyway. So these are my words. Okay, so everything Jeremiah wrote in his prophecy and in the book of Lamentations are God's words. Okay. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 2? In 1 Corinthians, the first four verses, Paul, or first four chapters, Paul is uh, comparing worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And he says here in chapter 2 something about where he's getting his information. So what does he say there in First Corinthians? Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Right. So the Spirit is the one who gave Paul his message. 
all right? And um, let's go over to Galatians. I'm going to read this, or at least part of this. Um, the book of Galatians was written to the churches in the Galatian area where Paul spent his first missionary journey. It's up there in the middle of what is now Turkey. Uh, so the book, the book of Galatians was kind of a circular letter, letter to be read by all the churches up there that he founded. Um, and he's writing to, to answer the charges of the Judaizers. <laughs> when, as soon as the Jews got word that Paul was going around the world spreading this new gospel, Jesus was the Messiah, etc., and you don't have to follow the law anymore, they got upset. And so they started following him around and trying to discredit him. Everywhere he had built a church, they came later and said, no, Paul, you can't do it. And so Paul is writing the book of Galatians to say, they're wrong, <laughs> I'm right. Okay, so he does that. Um, First Corinthians, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 1. Um, this is kind of a complicated thing. The first two chapters of Galatians are biographical. Paul is giving his history. The second two chapters, three and four, are theological, where Paul talks about the switch between the law, or from the law, to grace. And the last two chapters are practical. He shows them how to apply what he told them <laughs> in chapters three and four. So the first two chapters are biographical. So uh, he's giving, he's telling them how he got his message. Verse 15 of chapter 1 of Galatians says, But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. This is parallel to Acts chapter 9, his, his conversion experience. So he's in Damascus, and instead of going to talk to the authorities in the church, he goes off to Arabia, way down there in the Sinai Peninsula. What else happened in the Sinai Peninsula in Israel's history? Moses. Yeah, Moses was kicked out of Egypt and he spent 40 years wandering around Sinai Peninsula. So by the time he led Israel out of Egypt, he knew the territory. <laughs> so he was commissioned there with a burning bush and all of that stuff. And what happened later at Sinai? God gave him the law. God is instructing his people. God uses Sinai. <laughs> so Paul says here, I went to the same place. And God instructed me the same place he instructed Moses and the same place he instructed, uh, well, gave the law. You know. He instructed me. Now it doesn't say how long he was there. Most people say he was in the Arabia three years, but it doesn't say that. It says he went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Verse 18 says, Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem. So we don't know how long he was in Arabia being taught by God. 
but he got his gospel there. Then he went back to Damascus. He hadn't been, you know, Damascus is way north of Israel. Arabia is way south. <laughs> and he's just traveling through. He never stopped in, in Jerusalem to, to talk to anybody. <clears throat> so he's been preaching for three years, and then he goes up to Jerusalem to talk to the leaders. And his point is to the Galatians, I didn't get my message from any human being. I got it directly from God. Okay. So when I tell you you don't have to follow the law anymore, it's been replaced by the new covenant, by God's promise, by God's grace, you can trust me. Okay. I got it directly from God. Chapter 2, the first couple of verses. Um, so I skipped it. Um, he's, we skip the rest of the chapter 1 where he talks about ministering some more. Then chapter 2, verse 1, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This is Acts 15 with the Council of Jerusalem where they deal with, with uh, issues. <laughs> and Paul says, well, he says it right here, it was because of a revelation I went up. In other words, I didn't go up there to get advice. I went up there because God told me to. Okay. So then he talks with them. I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation. Uh, I say John and Peter and James probably. For fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now he wasn't worried about the authenticity or authority of his gospel when he says that. He's worried about how it may look to the church in Jerusalem. He's saying, I've been telling these people that they don't have to follow the law. Okay. So I submitted this to the people in Jerusalem in case they thought I was teaching something that I shouldn't have been. Okay. I've been wasting my time. <laughs> but it turned out that he was right because uh, while it says not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, which shows that they were not following the law. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in and spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. So that's what he's fighting, the Judaizers. Um, verses 6 through 9 say the same thing, except it says there that the authorities in the Jerusalem church agreed with him. They, they put their stamp of approval on his gospel, the one he had been preaching for 14 years plus. So his point to the Galatians is, I got this straight from God, you know, so you can trust it. Don't pay attention to the Judaizers. And in, again, in, in chapters 3 and 4, he explains theologically how that works. That God gave Abraham the promise, you know, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That was 400 years before the law. <laughs> So God's promise of redemption through faith precedes the law. The law never got rid of the promise to Abraham. So he's saying now the promise has been fulfilled. The law was there temporarily. He said we needed that to keep us in line, but it's been fulfilled. Christ fulfilled it, therefore it no longer functions. Like any contract, if you want some work done at your house and you hire a contractor to do the work, you sign on the dotted line. And when the work is done and you've made the final payment, 
the contract has been fulfilled. It's not in effect anymore. It was good when it was <laughs> in effect, but it's over. Same thing with the law, the Mosaic law, the old, the old covenant. It served its purpose, it's been fulfilled, it's no longer in effect. So the Judaizers were misleading the Galatians and telling them, it's fine if you want to believe that Jesus is Messiah, but you still have to follow the law. Paul says, no, you don't. And he explains why in chapters 3 and 4. <clears throat> so again, the source of Scripture, Paul got his Scripture from God. So if you're going to do a literal grammatical approach, you have to start with the text as it is. Right? And we see that it claims to be divinely inspired. The permanence of Scripture. Okay? It's one thing to say that it's from God, but how long is it going to last? <laughs> um, let's go to John chapter 10. This is going to take a little background. Um, and by the way, when I take time to go over these texts like this, I'm kind of illustrating for you the process of hermeneutics. <laughs> okay. When I was training tutors at IVC, I trained them using the same method they would need to tutor students. So they kind of absorbed <laughs> the, the process and the pattern. So that's kind of what I'm doing here. So, um, John chapter 10, he, Jesus is having another run-in with the Pharisees. He's, the, the chapter starts with his saying that he is the good shepherd. All the other shepherds, he said, were false shepherds. And that, of course, would be the Pharisees. In um, where are we? verse 22, uh, it says, At that time, when he's in the temple here teaching about the good shepherd and stuff, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. What is the Feast of Dedication? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. That's what we call it. <laughs> you won't find it in the law. It's not part of the Old Covenant. When did Hanukkah start? 164 BC. 64. <laughs> yeah. Right. The, with the Maccabees. <coughs> yeah. Alexander the Great died in 323, and the kingdom was divided among his four generals. And Ptolemy, starting with a P, a PT, was given Egypt and Israel as his domain in the Greek uh, Empire. Seleucus was given Syria above Israel and all points east over to India. And I forget the other two generals and what they got, but they don't play into this anyway. <laughs> so Ptolemy down there was kind of lenient. He was, he was overseeing Israel, but he let them do whatever they wanted. You know, you want to worship Jehovah, go ahead. You know, the temple worship and sacrifices, no problem. Just remember, I'm in charge. And <laughs> they said, okay. <laughs> Real fine. Well, Seleucus up north, and of course, the, the Ptolemies in the south and there were a sequence, Ptolemy first, Ptolemy second, Ptolemy third, family line, family name. Um, <clears throat> Seleucus was up at the top, and his family name were, was Antiochus. So there were Antiochus the first, Antiochus the second, Antiochus the third. Well, Ptolemy was kind of lenient, Seleucus was kind of heavy handed. And he thought that he should have the whole thing. <laughs> and so he kept coming down, invading Israel and going into Egypt, trying to 
conquer Ptolemy so he could grab the whole thing. So there were several raids like that. But Ptolemy kept fighting him back until Antiochus IV comes along. Antiochus Epiphanes. We talk about people having an epiphany. <laughs> a sudden light goes on, you know. Well, epiphany meant a, a, an honored one, a lust, illustrious person, you know. So he, don't know who named him Epiphanes, but that was his name, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, <clears throat> he finally won over Ptolemy, okay, and took over. So he got down to Israel and decided that they needed to be Hellenized. They needed to adopt Greek culture. So he insisted that they stop all their Jewishness. No more temple worship, no more sacrifices, nothing that had anything to do with the law. They had to be Greeks because he was Greek. Uh, and to be sure they didn't go back in the temple, he sacrificed a pig on the altar <laughs> because pigs are unclean animals, you know. So he, he was just thumbing his nose at God, basically, and knew the Jews wouldn't go in there. Well, the Jews put up with this for a while, but then I think it was Judas Maccabeus, the first one, started a revolt. He got all the Jews riled up and said, let's get these Greeks out of here. <laughs> and it took several battles, and I forget how many years, but it was a while. I think it's this started like in 175. Yeah, it started in 175, and uh, Antiochus IV took over. And uh, they finally won. The Jews finally kicked him out in 164. Okay. So to celebrate, they rededicated the temple. And the word Hanukkah means dedication. So the Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. Now you have probably heard that it's also called the Feast of Lights. And there's a story that festival, festival of lights. Festival. Yeah, festival. <clears throat> it's the feast of dedication. <laughs> festival of lights. How that came about is interesting. It's speculation. Um, they were celebrating their victory over the Greeks. They they cleaned out the temple and rededicated it, and they're having a big party over that, and it lasted seven days. And somebody said, you know it might not be a very good idea for us to thumb our noses at the Greeks. I mean, they're still there, and they're still strong. <laughs> you know, if, if we get too uppity about this, they might come back, and we, it, things might be worse. So they, come, they came up with an alternative reason for the festival, and that's the story about the oil. They had enough oil to last one day, but God made it last seven days. So that's why it's called the Festival of Lights. That's kind of all speculation, how exactly that happened. It's, it's plausible that they wanted to tone things down <laughs> to maintain their autonomy. But we don't know about that for sure. But anyway, that's the background of this. So this was the festival, the Feast of Dedication, seven days. And it came right after the Feast of Booths, where they lived in tents for seven days to to remember their wandering in the wilderness. So they're there. Uh, where are we? Verse 23. It was winter. This is why it's Hanukkah celebrated in <clears throat> excuse me, December because they won the victory in December of 164 B.C. Okay, so they celebrated that same month. So it's wintertime. 
Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Herod had refurbished the temple. There, there wasn't much left of the original, of Solomon's original temple, but there was one porch left. And so Jesus is walking in that porch area. It says the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Several issues going on there. First of all, it was a, a challenge because everybody knew that the Messiah was deity, was God. If he claimed to be God, he was in trouble. But also, the Messiah, everybody understood that when the Messiah came, he would be the deliverer. Just as the Maccabees delivered Israel from the Greeks, so the Messiah would come and deliver Israel from whoever was <laughs> oppressing them at the time. Well, Jesus had been around now for a while, and he hadn't done anything to get rid of the Romans. You remember, John the Baptist, after he was arrested, sent a disciple to Jesus saying, Hey, are you the Messiah, or do we have to look for someone else? I mean, you can imagine John the Baptist. He was out there preaching repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand, expecting the Messiah to be the deliverer, and Jesus didn't do anything. He's thinking, did I waste my time? <laughs> did I introduce the wrong guy? Because <laughs> he's not doing what we think the Messiah should do. And what did Jesus say in response to that? Yeah. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. In other words, I am doing the things that the Messiah is prophesied to do. That's evidence enough. If I'm not kicking Rome out, that's irrelevant, okay? I am proving by what I'm doing that I am the Messiah. I'm fulfilling that prophecy. So he was, he was um, comforting John the Baptist, you might say. <clears throat> so that's what he says here. It, basically, they're challenging him. If you are the Christ, this is the Feast of Dedication celebrating the victory, the deliverance of Israel by the, by the Maccabees, if you're the deliverer, why aren't you delivering Israel? <laughs> so it's kind of a challenge in, on several levels. Notice how he answered them. He said, I told you. you know, I told you, and you do not believe. Well, how did he tell them? There's never any place in the, in the Gospels that says Jesus told them directly, I am the Messiah. He told that to the woman at the well. Okay, But notice how he answers here. What is it they didn't believe? He says, the works, verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. They had seen his miracles all this time. You know, he's basically saying, how much proof do you want? <laughs> Same thing he said to, to John the Baptist. Yeah, but several times <clears throat> Jesus used the phrase, I am. Yeah. And they understood mm -hmm. that that meant he was claiming to be a deity. Yeah, but not uh, Messiah. I mean, they tried <laughs> to kill him when he, he said that. Right. So it was pretty, pretty graphic. It mm -hmm. was pretty plain that yeah. he definitely did say that. Uh, yeah, and when he claimed the name of God, Yahweh, which I am is a derivative of Yahweh, which is from the verb to be, so I exist. And is he God's says name. That a number of times. Right, right. In John's but, 
here they've made a little more specific, the Messiah or the Christ. Okay. Uh, so he says, my works, verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Remember, he started the chapter talking about being the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If that isn't claiming to be God. (laughs) So how do they respond? Verse 31, the Jews took up stones (laughs) to stone him. And he answers, wait, 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 guys, wait, hang on, hang on. He says, I showed you many good works from the Father. Again, these are from God. As Nicodemus said in John chapter 3, we know you're a teacher come from God because nobody can do the things you do except God. So he's saying the same thing here. For which of them are you stoning me? And what do they respond? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. When he said that God was his Father, or that he and the Father were one, he was claiming identity with God. Jesus' response to that, verse 34, Has it not been written in your law, I said, God is speaking, I said, you are gods? If you go back to the psalm there, which is uh, Psalm 82, uh, God is speaking to the leaders of Israel in that psalm, and he's condemning them. They were his spokesmen. They were supposed to be his representatives, and yet they were treating the people badly. And so he said, you guys are in trouble. (laughs) You're going to come under judgment, all right? So, but he called them gods because they were God's representative. And so he says here, um, where am I? Oh yeah, verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, in other words, they weren't really God. They just had received God's word and were supposed to be passing it on and they weren't doing that. What time is that? 86. 80, yeah, 82 verse 6. Yeah. But the whole psalm, he gives the background for that statement. Okay. So Jesus' point there, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, notice, and the scripture cannot be broken. <laughs> this is true. You know, you can't prove this wrong. Okay. Uh, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Notice he didn't say he's the Son of God up there. He said that God was his Father. But if God is his Father, then obviously he's God's Son. Jehovah's Witnesses camp on this verse because they believe, of course, that Jesus was not God. They They think as the Son of God, he was less than God. So they're saying, see, he's not claiming to be God. He's claiming to be less because he's claiming to be God's. Yeah. Well, they say that means one in purpose. Okay. So anyway, in, in reality, sonship throughout the Bible indicates identity. Because children inherit the nature and characteristics of the parents. Ogden Nash has a poem about that. 
which you may be familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> he said, uh, whales have calves, cats have kittens, bears have cubs, bats have bittens, swans have cygnets, seals have puppies, but guppies just have little guppies. <laughs> the children inherit the nature of the parent. If God has a son, that son is going to be God, <laughs> going to have the nature of God, going to be deity. Well, it's not about Jesus not claiming to be God. If that was the case, that he wasn't really claiming to be God, as some would say, why would they stone him? Exactly. Yeah. The Jews got the point. Yeah. I'm tempted, if I ever talk to a Jehovah's Witness about this verse, I haven't yet, but I'm tempted to ask that Jehovah's Witness, do you have kids? They'll probably say yes, and I'll say, well, what are they? They'll say, what? Are they cats? Are they dogs? Are they elephants? What are they? They'll say, well, they're human. I'll say, well, they can't be human because you're human, and children are less than their parents, so your children can't be human. <laughs> they have to be less than human. Let's go to the next door, folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Sonship indicates identity, nature. So if he's the son of God, he is deity. Um, so verse 38, but if I do them, that is the works of God, though you do not believe me, what that is what I say, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. That's going to make things even worse <laughs> for the yeah. Jews. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. <clears throat> it wasn't his time yet to be arrested, so I'm, I'm kind of thinking that God paralyzed them. <laughs> so they couldn't grab him, and he just walked away. But the point here is, for this, back to the permanence of the Scripture here, he says the Scripture cannot be broken. If God said it, it's going to last. It's not, it's not going to be proof false. It's not going to disappear. Uh, Mark 13.31 uh, What does Mark 13.31 say? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And uh, finally, Luke 16 in verse 17. Yeah. So when it says heaven and earth, it's referring to the sky, the heavens, correct? Yeah, so not, Greek, it's not, going to be not the dwelling place of God. So if you took a literal <laughs> reading of that, you would think that... It could be, yeah. Right. Yeah. But it, you know... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want the fake literal. <laughs> <laughs> So where are we? Luke 16, chapter 16 and verse 17. This is going to take some illustration. Uh, it says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. One stroke of a letter. <clears throat> Hebrew is a uh, 
pictographic language like Chinese, Japanese. Hebrew is Asian. All of that area is Asian. So it's similar to uh, Japanese and Chinese. It's pictographic. The letters in Greek stand for something. Like Aleph, the first letter, the original writing of it looked like a bull's head because Aleph means bull. <laughs> so it's a picture of a bull's head. Through the years, the letters changed. But when it says, you know, one stroke of a letter, I need to illustrate that. Okay. That's an R in Greek, a resh, okay? This isn't formal printing in the, in the, not cursive, but in the everyday printing, it's a little easier to make this distinction. But anyway, gotta stay in my hand here. That's a D, Dalit. What's the difference? Yeah, this little thing here. That makes a difference between an R and a D. Yeah. And when he says, not the smallest stroke of a letter, that's what he's talking about. <laughs> no little, even little piece of a letter is going to fail in the law. Now in handwriting, it's easier because the R is just kind of a, a lazy, if I can do it right, kind of a lazy seven, and a D is like that. So they're easier to tell apart in the, the common writing. <clears throat> so the law, or God's word, is permanent. <laughs> it's not going to pass away. So we see that it comes from God, and it's not going anywhere. Okay. So again, this is these are foundational things to interpreting Scripture. you got to know what you're dealing with. And again, you give the text the benefit of the doubt. It claims to be from God. And as you study it, you see the evidence there that it is from God. So when it says failed, what's the Greek? Is, is it referring to perfection or is it referring to strength of it? I think it means it's going to be fulfilled. The whole law is going to be fulfilled, not even I, the I least little part. Up, for example, I go look up fail. Probably, I didn't bring my Greek New Testament, or I could tell you, and I haven't looked it up I before. Mean, for my yeah, yeah, yeah. It means it's going to achieve its purpose. It's not going to fail. Uh, also, related to uh, Scripture again, we have the testimony of Christ and the claims of the writers. Um, we're just going to get into this because, well, we'll save it for next time because <laughs> we're out of time already. We've got about a minute and a half left. Yeah. So any uh, observations or comments about any of that? Okay. So we'll pick up there next time dealing with... Uh, how Christ and the, the claims of the different writers of Scripture indicate that Scripture is inspired by God and the true Bible. You know, to the lost, it's foolishness. 
to me this is one evidence of my salvation because it's so easy to understand. Yeah. And I, you know, I just don't understand why people don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, it's right there, black, white, yeah. and red. Right. I saw, <clears throat> I saw a quote, and I can't remember who it was from, but the quote said that um, it's interesting that most frequently the doubters of the Bible are the ones who are least willing to actually read it. Yeah. So they criticize it without actually having read it. Mm -hmm. If they actually bother to read it, oh, yes. a lot of them end up being saved through it. Well, unbelievers um, will read a lot of material about the Bible before they're actually reading the Bible. Right, right. And, and a lot of the materials they're reading are from other unbelievers that are simply throwing darts at it um, without uh, proper understanding. And um, I, I, don't, I don't know how far you got into the literal, literal medical method. Where you just start just this far. Just this far, okay. <laughs> yeah, as you learn about the literal grammatical method, this is really how we just interpret everyday communication. Yeah. That's what you're going to find. I mean, it sounds technical, but when you start to start to hear all the concepts and, and all the principles that are involved in it, it's like, wait a second, this is how we understand communication, whether we're watching the news, reading a newspaper, you know, reading letters from one another. This is the way we're supposed to interpret each other's communication. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually quite straightforward, but a lot of unbelievers, and, and sometimes believers that aren't well-grounded will just apply all kinds of crazy principles. You know, they'll treat the scriptures like some encyclopedia of wisdom um, and not a cohesive set of books that are meant to, to, to tell the story of God's progressive uh, redemption throughout history and going all the way to the revelation. It's like they have to make it look difficult and yeah. deep and, you know, it's so easy to understand. Yeah. Right. I have a, a a tape of a radio program about this Jewish guy. It's basically his testimony. He was high up in Jewish circles in the city. I forget where he lived. Um, <clears throat> he was a businessman, well-to-do, very anti-Christian, anti-New Testament, but the Old Testament was fine. You know, he went to synagogue all the time and all that stuff. And his daughter went away to college, and, and uh, she became saved. And she knew that if she told that to her parents, she'd be disowned <laughs> instantly. So she called her parents. She didn't tell them that she'd been saved, but she just asked her father to read the New Testament. She, he, she said, just read it. You know, just start and read it. So he said he did that, and he was reading, started with Matthew, and he said he's reading along and not really accepting you know, what he was reading as authoritative because it's not the Old Testament. But he said he got up to Acts chapter 10 where Peter went to Cornelius and presented the gospel, the Messiah, to the Gentiles. And he said he stopped reading and thought, how did our Messiah become the Messiah of the Gentiles? <laughs> So we suddenly realize the New Testament is all about Jesus. Who was a Jew? <laughs> if the New Testament isn't the Gentiles' Bible as he thought it was, you know, it was a Jewish document. Yeah, I, I remember reading a quote from another uh, Jewish uh, academic 
who upon reading the New, New Testament said he was actually surprised at how Jewish the New Testament really was. And uh, if you guys know who Ben Shapiro is, Ben Shapiro is a, a very popular political apologist. Um, he's obviously Jewish, he, he hasn't converted to Christ, um, but he said when he read the New Testament, he said the words of Jesus Christ sound very much like an Old Testament prophet. Mm -hmm. Which, he's being honest, because Jesus Christ was the final Old Testament prophet. Right. Joel Rosenberg is a very interesting author of fiction and um, uh, actual <coughs> books. And um, he is a, a converted Jew. Yeah. And some of our greatest Christian apologists are the ones who were once Jewish rabbis mm -hmm. um, that, that came to understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Um, a guy named Charles Feinberg, um, very, very influential. He, he was actually someone on the road from the rabbi and that he converted to, to Christ. Um, mm. um, Alfred Edersheim, who writes a lot of those background commentaries that mm -hmm. we talked about that are so crucial to understanding the world in between the Old and the New Testament, um, he was the same way, um, converted to recognize Jesus Christ was his Messiah. Because they have all this Old Testament knowledge, and now they see with just crystal clarity mm -hmm. how the Old Testament all points to Jesus Christ and how the New Testament it is not a whole separate, uh, different set of books from a different God, but it's really the completion of, of what the Old Testament is looking forward to. Gary, uh, <coughs> friends are Jewish, and we were discussing some of this stuff today, and he said, you know, I think when Jesus came there to Jerusalem, gave us the his descent, I think he was there to celebrate the Passover. <laughs> <laughs> well, just remember this. Jesus lived before the New Testament was written. He was an Old Testament Jew, a very pious Old Testament Jew. Mm -hmm. He kept the law perfectly. He's the only one that ever did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the light goes on. Yeah. All right, well, let's close in prayer.